Today we're looking at Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can open up there. You can open up your phone if you have a Bible app and follow along, or you can just follow the scriptures that will be on the screen in just a moment. We're going to read the traditional Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, because that's what you do at Christmas. That's what people expect at Christmas. Christmas is, I think, the most traditional time of the year. There are things that we have to do during the Christmas season. We don't do any other time of the year, but we must do at Christmas. For example, some of you have decorating traditions. The day after Thanksgiving, you pull out the tree, you put it up, you decorate it, put lights around the house, maybe put the inflatable Santa in the front yard. I mean, you have decorating traditions that you follow every year. When our family was young and we lived in Arizona, we would go in the mountains and cut a fresh tree to bring home for Christmas. Sometimes it looked like a Charlie Brown tree, but it was our tree. We have traditions regarding goodies, Christmas sweets. Everybody has grandma's recipe for cookies or candy. And so uh, my aunt would make divinity. My mom would make almond joy bars. Some of you make uh, peanut brittle. And you only make those things at Christmas. Now, you're going to die when you hear this, but our our family would would buy a fruitcake at Christmas. And being a kid who loves sugar, I found that a sweet cake with little pieces of unknown objects in them that look like licorice or dots was, was kind of good. And so I grew up eating fruitcake, which I understand. And some people have the tradition of throwing, kicking, doing all sorts of mean things to fruitcakes. And that's part of the tradition. We have traditions regarding events. Maybe you go to the Nutcracker, or maybe you go to the Madrigals, or the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, or you go see the lights at the Broadmoor. We have, we have traditions regarding the clothing that we wear. You have certain Christmas clothes you'll only wear, or your family will only let you wear at Christmas like an ugly sweater. Now, nobody has one on tonight, except there might be one guy that I saw with an ugly sweater on tonight. Um, if he's sitting next to you, you can let him know that. But you only let him wear it at Christmas. You're kind of embarrassed that they wear it any other time. We had a gentleman in our church for years who would come with a bright green blazer and embarrass his family to no end, but he had this big smile on his face because it was his jacket that he would wear Christmas every single year. I am convinced he's wearing it tonight somewhere around this city for Christmas. Well, we have a lot of traditions regarding Christmas Eve and and Christmas Day. That's why you're here, because for a lot of you, it's tradition. We go to church Christmas Eve. We light candles and sing Silent Night on Christmas Eve. And then maybe we go to Grandma's house, or maybe we go home and open up our stockings, or I don't know what your traditions are, but you have them. We have them. Our, Our tradition, because we are a church Christmas Eve for multiple services, we don't have a tradition other than that Christmas Eve, but Christmas morning, we get up, and my wife makes this great big breakfast, Only breakfast she makes all year, but it's a great breakfast. (laughs) Cooks really thick bacon. Makes this wonderful thing called oven pancakes, which are really thick, and you smother with buttermilk sauce and berries, and it's heavenly. It's delicious, and it's high in calories, but it's wonderful to have on Christmas Day. And then we go over and we slowly open our gifts, one person at a time, one gift at a time. That's our tradition. You know, when I was a kid, we had a tradition in our church of doing the Christmas pageant. Remember that? You have little boys and girls dress up like, like uh, wise men and shepherds and Joseph and Mary and got a little plastic Jesus and maybe there were some angels around there. Maybe some of the kids got to be animals and we had the whole uh, Hallmark postcard look of what Christmas, the first Christmas must have looked like. But honestly, that is more tradition than truth. When you really investigate the Christmas story, it didn't really look quite like that. And here's the dilemma we're in. We, we have a lot of traditions that sometimes we don't know which are true and which aren't. And I want to just tell you, you want to make sure that you have some traditions in your life, but you always want to hold on to the truth. 
Never sacrifice truth for tradition. And we're going to look at the Christmas story today, and you're going to find some things that are a little different than the way you used to see Christmas. And you'll find that as we read from Luke chapter 2. Here's, here's what he wrote. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, if you would read Luke's gospel from the very beginning, the very first chapter, Luke makes a point to say he he investigated his resources to create an, an accurate account of the life of Jesus. And so when he cites real historical figures like Caesar Augustus, you can line that up with history to show that this really did happen. See, Caesar Augustus really was a character. His birth name was Gaius Octavius. His great uncle was the famous Julius Caesar who was assassinated in Rome in the year 44 B.C. He had named his great-nephew Gaius in his will as his adopted son and heir. And so this boy grew up and and adopted his his great-uncle's name and incorporated it in his own. So he was Gaius Julius Caesar Octavius. He began to enter into the political life even at a young age. He was one of three rulers over the Roman Empire. And over the course of his years, as people were killed off or died, he became the sole emperor of Rome. Now, it was believed that since his great uncle was considered a god in the Roman culture, that he was a son of a god and therefore above average humans. He was given the title Augustus, which meant illustrious one. Because he was not only their political leader, he would be their religious leader. He would be their lord. And when he made a decree, people obeyed. And so he made this decree that a census be taken. That happened about every 14 years. They did this to pull in tax money, but also to see how many young men were available to be in their army. And so Joseph and Mary must return to the town of their ancestry to Bethlehem to be registered. We don't know if that was a Roman requirement or Jewish requirement, but they have to go back to their hometown. Everyone did that because, especially in Jewish culture, genealogies were very important. And so they, re, they returned there. It's about a 90-mile trip to Bethlehem. It's, it's about from here to DIA. Now, that's not very long. You can drive it in about an hour and a half if you have a car. If you're walking on dusty roads with a pregnant wife, it takes a lot longer. You know, maybe four, five, six days. And maybe they have a donkey with them to help carry some of their belongings. We don't know that. But it's going to take a while to get up to Bethlehem. Now, they say up to Bethlehem. And it's interesting because if you look on a map, it's south. Bethlehem's south of Nazareth. But it says they're going up to Bethlehem. Now, why is that? Well, it's the same thing from... When you look at Denver and Colorado Springs, I've had people say that we're going down to Denver, and I thought, down to Denver? What do you mean down to Denver? Denver's up. I look on my map, it's up. But it's actually down elevation-wise. We're higher. We're a little above Denver, right? We're a little above Denver, 750 feet above Denver. So they come up to us. We don't go up to them. They come up to us, even though on the map we go down. And so that's the way it was. Elevation-wise, you're going up to Bethlehem. This man and his several-month pregnant wife to the birthplace of David, a place called Bethlehem, which means house of bread. 
house of bread. Isn't that interesting? Because Jesus, when he came, said, I am the bread of life. And there he is in the house of bread. Now, they're there not just because Caesar Augustus decreed it. They're really there because God needs them there. God needs them in Bethlehem because they are going to fulfill a scripture. See, listen to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This little village, this little place, will be the birthplace of the promised Messiah. And it's not because Julius Caesar knows what's going on. It's because God is orchestrating things. See, God, God is higher than any political ruler, whether it be a king, emperor, or president. And though they may think they're powerful, God is more powerful. And God can use them as sort of his puppets. God can use them as his instruments, whether they're people of faith or not, to carry out his will. And God uses Caesar Augustus, who decrees a census, to get this young couple down to Bethlehem so they can fulfill this scripture. I told you last week that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. This is one of the promises God made, and this is how he kept it. And it says that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I've always pictured Joseph and Mary, really Joseph, going door to door to all these hotels knocking and seeing if they had any vacancies in the hotel. And, and one after they're saying, no, sorry, we're all booked up because so many other people went to Bethlehem for the very same reason. But the reality is this word in other places is translated guest room, like where the disciples had the Last Supper. It was a guest room in a house. And what Joseph was actually doing was going to houses that had guest rooms, kind of a bed and breakfast, so that he could have a place for he and his wife to stay while they were in Bethlehem. But as they went to these various houses, nobody had any room. Archaeologists have found that next to these guest houses were often a dividing wall and a courtyard, an open-air courtyard where people could stay, and if they had animals, could stay with their animals. It's most likely Joseph and Mary stayed in something like that. Not a, not a barn stable with the cows and the goats. We don't even know if they had any animals there with them. We really don't. It doesn't say. It doesn't say the cattle were lowing or the sheep were bleeding or the chickens were clucking. It doesn't say any of that. All we know is Joseph and Mary were there when the child was born. Now think about that. No midwife, no nurse, no hospital bed, no anesthesia, Possibly just Joseph and Mary. I mean, if I was a husband, man, I would lose it there trying to help my wife give birth to that baby. But it works. They have this little baby, and they cut the cord, and she wraps this little child up in swaddling cloths. Now, what in the world are those? Which really is just strips of cloth, almost like an ace bandage, about four inches wide. They would wrap up a child very snugly so that his arms would be held to the side and his legs would be kept straight. The belief was that if you kept a child in that position for a few days, it would ensure their arms and legs growing straight. Now, they, they discovered that wasn't the case, and a couple centuries later, that practice stopped. But the practice of wrapping a baby very snugly is still practiced today. They sleep better than if they're flailing around with their limbs. She wrapped them up, and then she placed them in a manger. Now, I always thought the manger was like a little baby crib. And they just put some hay in there and nice, comfortable bed for the baby Jesus. How wrong I was. That the, the mangers in biblical times were not made of wood. They were made of stone. 
In fact, here's what we kind of think the manger, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's what we think the manger looked like. This is what a real manger that has been discovered in Israel looked like. Made out of limestone, a small indentation carved there, not to hold grain or grass, but to hold water. See, they had plenty of fields to graze in. The reason they had a manger was for water. And so here Jesus was wrapped up very snugly in strips of cloth and laid in this kind of cold stone manger. Changes our view of the story, doesn't it? A lot of things about the stories change. We don't know the day Jesus was born. We celebrate it December 25th. Nobody knows exactly the day Jesus was born. Some say that was not a season that the shepherds were in the field, so it couldn't have been that time. Others say it was close to that time. We don't know. The reason we celebrate December 25th is this. There was a Roman holiday in the early centuries of the church in which they celebrated the sun, the rebirth of the sun. It was called Sol Invictus. It happened on the 25th of December. If you know this week, just a couple days ago, was the shortest day of sunlight all year. We're now getting days where the sun is going to shine a little bit longer day by day by day. They celebrated this as the rebirth of the sun. Well, Christians said, we want to celebrate this for a different reason, a better reason. We want to celebrate it because there is another son that has risen to bring light to the world, and his name is Jesus. And so we read this scripture from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Many look at that prophecy as a verse speaking of Jesus, who's compared to the son. And so they worship this son, which also is the son of God, on December 25th. I always thought Jesus was born in that year between B.C. and A.D., like right in the middle, but it wasn't. It was more like 5 or 6 B.C., which seems kind of strange for Jesus to be born that early. But Herod died in 4 B.C., and so Jesus was born before Herod died, so it had to be a little bit up to two years before then, so right around 5 or 6 B.C. All that to say, we really don't know a lot about the birth of Jesus. Don't know the day, don't know the, uh, the year, Don't know exactly where he was born, but we know this. And this is the most important thing. He was born. Jesus was born. And because Jesus was born, the world has never been the same. Do you know that a couple centuries later, that calendar was actually catered to Jesus? That B.C. referred to before Christ. That A.D. referred to the time of our Lord. That only now are people wanting to change that to the the common area and the before the common era because people don't like Jesus being connected to our calendar system. And yet here he came in the midst of this little village without fanfare, without a lot of noise, very humbly, quietly this evening. Jesus, a king, is not pampered or privileged. We'll find as the story goes, he came to minister to the common people like you and me. Luke writes in verse 8 that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God sends his son into this little village and 
the ones that are invited to be present aren't the dignitaries, aren't the political leaders, aren't the news media, but lowly shepherds. Shepherds who've been out in the field all night. Shepherds who are probably smelling stinky, dirty, because they're working with sheep. It's an ancient profession. It's a challenging profession. It's, a, it's an unpopular profession, sometimes very lonely. Yet Jesus chose them to appear to. I believe that God had a special heart for shepherds. In the Old Testament, he calls himself a shepherd. David called the Lord a shepherd in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Makes me lie down in green pastures. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus tells parables. One of the most famous parables, the one of a man who had 100 sheep. 99 are intact, but one of them wanders off, and the shepherd goes to look for that one and brings him back. We, we find Jesus telling church leaders, the elders and pastors, to shepherd God's people, his flock that is under their care. And then Peter writes that Jesus is the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. God has a special heart for shepherds, and that's who Jesus appears to. The angel came and frightened them. It frightened you too if you saw a big angel appear. But they hadn't, see, they hadn't heard from God for 400 years. Nobody heard anything from God for about 400 years. All this time had passed, generations, and no angels, no prophets. Yet here on this day, the angel appears, and they're afraid. So as I said last week, this is always the response of angels. First two words, fear not. Fear not. Why? Because I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Good news, great joy for all. What is that news? What is that news that brings great joy to all the people? It's this. In the town of David, this day a Savior has been born. It is Christ the Lord. Why is that good news of great joy? It's because of this. Back in the beginning when man was put on this earth, Adam and Eve chose to turn their backs to God and do things their own way. Same thing you and I have done. Sin entered this world because of sin, death entered this world. God made a promise that he would one day bring a deliverer who would remove the consequences of sin. He echoed that promise through Abraham, through Abraham's sons, and then told David that one was coming to be a king to save his people. And all the prophets of the Old Testament talked about this until we come to the New Testament when Jesus came. And Jesus came to be that deliverer. Jesus came to be that one who would save us from our sins. I was thinking the other day when I was reflecting on who I used to be. I started thinking, what would have happened to me if I never met Jesus? You know, it scares me. It really scares me. I look back, who I was, and the things that used to go through my head. There were times that I was very lonely and depressed. I had thoughts of suicide. There were times when I was very greedy and selfish and wanted to take advantage of people. There were times I was so angry I could have killed somebody. There were sometimes thoughts that were very perverse running through my head. And I think, man, there's, there's any number of things that could have derailed my life if I hadn't found Jesus. How wretched could I have become without the Lord? But at the age of 16, I gave my life to Jesus. And he gave me grace and gave me purpose and gave me great joy. A joy that lasts. See, Jesus came to bring that, not just for me or for church people, but for all the people. We often look at institutions like the media or government or sports, and we see the problems all around us. But you know where the biggest problem is? I'll tell you where you'll find the biggest problems. Go into your bathroom and look in the mirror. 
Because the problem really is you and me. I know we're reading in the news of all these celebrities who are being charged with misconduct and being fired from news shows and all kinds of things. But I wonder if the truth were told of each one of us and how we've treated people, maybe even our thought life, what we're thinking of about people, how ashamed we'd be. Because we're broken. We need a savior. We need help. And Jesus came to save lost people. He didn't come to save those who were so full of themselves that they somehow wanted to wave at God and, and see if God wanted to be part of their life, make their agenda succeed. God didn't come to, to find a little sliver of time in our schedule to say, yeah, I'll fit in that little space in your life if you'll give it to me. Jesus came to be Lord. You know what that means? Owner, boss, the one who reigns. And see, these angels came and they began to celebrate thousands upon thousands of the angels. Glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom he is pleased. And I think that many of us, like I used to have, this view of God that he's like Santa Claus. That he's making a list and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out he's naughty or nice. And the naughty people have bad things coming, and the nice people have good things coming. That's our view of God. But here's the problem. There's something that God values more than being good, and it's believing God. God values faith over what you perceive as your own goodness. Now, he loves goodness. He loves that we are good, but he he loves when we're good out of obedience to him. See, faith is so critical. The the book of Hebrews says it this way. Without faith, it is not just difficult, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice that. doesn't reward those who do good. He rewards those who seek him, who trust in him. I know many of us, like me, would say, I believe in God. I've heard the Christmas story since I was little. I've always believed the story to be true. I've always believed in that, that there's a God. I've not always trusted God. And that's the difference. I didn't trust God really until I was 16 years old. Trust is different than just saying I believe. Some of you may wonder, like, well, pastor, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? I don't quite understand that. It's hard to understand unless you have one. It's kind of like trying to tell someone what it's like to be married when they've never been married. I'll tell you, you can tell someone all you want, but they'll never understand it until they get married. It's it's different. It's harder. And I'll tell you how to have a relationship with God. It's very easy. It's very simple. It's as simple as A, B, C, D. We're going to go through that in just a second. But I'll also tell you this. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's simple, and yet it's hard. Here's why. Here's how simple it is. A, it starts by just admitting that you're sinful, admitting that you're broken, admitting that you've got issues, Admitting that you let God down and failed him. See, Jesus can't be savior unless you need to be saved from something. It starts there, admitting you've sinned. Second is B, believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus came and lived this perfect life. Believe that Jesus went to a cross. Do you know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem where these shepherds were? And you know what the shepherds raised? Sheep. They were only five miles from Jerusalem, the place where the temple was. Some of these sheep were raised to go to that temple to be sacrificed. The best ones, the spotless lambs, the ones without blemish, would be taken to Jerusalem to the temple, and every day there'd be lambs that were slaughtered. Why? Because 
Sin deserves death. And a lamb will die in the place of humans this day and the next day until the final perfect sacrifice is given. The lamb without blemish. The perfect lamb of God, which was Jesus Christ. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was raised from the dead. See is to confess him as Lord. The Bible says if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can't be a private Christian. You can't be private. He says you've got to confess. What does it mean to confess? Admit verbally. Admit verbally that Jesus is who he said he was. He is Lord. It's kind of like when you're married, when a couple gets in front of the people, they may said privately in, in the dark, in the car, on a walk, thousands of times they love each other, but it's different when they stand before witnesses. And their question, do you take this man or you take this woman to be committed to in marriage? And publicly, verbally, they say, yes, I do, or they repeat vows. That's their confession. You need to say, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you. And you will be saved. And then the D is this. is to die to self and live for him. See, if Jesus is Lord, that means he's the leader of my life. I'm no longer in charge. And here's where it gets really hard. That means day after day, I have to relinquish myself to him. It's not my agenda. It's not my time. It's not my money. It's not my future. It's his. God, how do you want me to use what you've given me for you? And that's painful at times. That's very difficult. But we have a ritual, a symbol that we go through to demonstrate the fact that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's called baptism. Someone's buried in water, raised from the dead to show that they're no longer in charge, but Jesus is. I want to ask you, have you ever done that? Have you, ever, have you ever called on the Lord and said, I believe in you, Jesus. I need saving. I'm a sinner in need of your grace. Would you be Lord of my life? I invite you in. Reign over my life. I give it to you right now. Have you ever done that? I did that when I was 16. I have never regretted that. Changed my whole life. Changed my whole life. Jesus has been there for every decision I've made in my life. He's guided me. He's given me wisdom. He's my Savior, Lord, but he's also my friend, and he's here to be your friend as well. well let me wrap up the story. It says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. These shepherds show up. Somehow they find the house. They see the little baby lying in the stone manger. And they go, this is exactly what the angel said. This is the fulfillment. And I don't know how long they stayed there with Joseph and Mary, but probably not very long. Because it said that then they began to make known the message. The message that this day in the city of David, the Savior has been born. Christ the Lord. And so they went around. They were so excited. They told, they told everyone they could what had just happened that night. And then it says this. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I I find this very interesting because it sort of categorizes all of us. We fall into one of two camps. Either we're like the shepherds who've said, you know what, I gotta find out for myself. I've heard all this Jesus stuff, I need to find out for myself. And if you get close enough to Jesus, you can't help but have your life so impacted that you'll walk away wanting to tell everyone else about what you've discovered. 
If you've never gotten close enough to Jesus to have that experience, I wonder if you really know Jesus as Lord. Because it is so overwhelming, so powerful in your life that, that it says that they went away praising and glorifying God. You'll want to do that if you get close to Jesus. But others, and probably many of us in this place, fall in the other camp. We wonder at what we've heard. It's like we listen to the story of others who've gotten close to Jesus and we go, wow, that's interesting. That's pretty cool. That's amazing. We may even believe that it's true, but not for ourselves because we've not gotten close enough. We're just standing back and going, I need to think about this. Well, some of us have been thinking about it 10, 20, 30 years. Are we just going to stand back and watch or are we going to get close and have our lives transformed? This truly is good news of great joy for all the people, for the rich, the poor, the young and the old, the single, the divorced, the widow, the widower, the married, the foreigner, the immigrant, the native, black, white, Native American. He came for every single person in this room because we all have the same needs. We all have the very same needs, forgiveness and grace and peace and joy. All of those are the very same needs we have. And Jesus came to offer it for us. There are many parts of this story that maybe we've gotten wrong or maybe we really don't even know for sure, but I know this for sure. 2,000, 20-some years ago, a child was born, and the world has never been the same since. And if you accept him as Savior and Lord of your life, I can promise you this, your life will never be the same. This past week, uh, our Chick-fil-A up on the Mesa had 12 days of Christmas, actually the last two weeks, and every day you could go there and get something free. All you had to do was come, show up with open hands. I like your free thing today. You didn't have to buy anything else. Just hold out your hand. They'd give you a shake or give you some nuggets. Or last couple days was chicken sandwiches. Really good. Very good. Love Chick-fil-A. But not today. I got sick of Chick-fil-A by the end of the week. I ate too much chicken. You know, that's a problem with many free things. You get tired of them. And they grow old. You know, tomorrow morning, I'm just going to warn you, you're going to open up gifts. And some of them are going to go out of style. Some of them are going to get worn out. Some will get returned. Some of those things you're going to eat. Some of the gifts the dogs will eat. (laughs) And I can tell you this, weeks, months from now, they're not going to satisfy. Because just like Chick-fil-A chicken, you're going to be hungry the next day and the next day. But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus when, when you accept this free gift and you come to him with open arms, he fills you in such a way that unlike physical hunger, he satisfies you. He really does. He satisfies you like nothing else. You can watch Christmas come and go, and if you have a relationship with Jesus, you go, I'm full. I'm full. I'm content here on earth, and I know where I'm going to be through eternity in heaven. It's all because of Jesus. And so I just want to ask you today, what's keeping you from coming to Jesus and saying, I believe in you and I need a Savior and I confess you today as Lord.